It's all about God, who God is, and what he is doing. In the beginning, there was a time when there was nothing except God himself, and then he created the heavens and the earth. He created the spiritual realm and the physical realm by the word of his power. And what we can infer from the way that Moses, we believe the author of Genesis, the reason that he started the scriptures this way is he's telling us a story, right? He's telling us a story of the reality of the world, the reality of history, the reality of God himself. And so we can infer from that that the story in the beginning is starting us somewhere and it's going to lead us somewhere. So from the very beginning of Genesis, we have this idea. We're given this revelation. God is there and God is doing something in history. And what we'll get to later is God actually doesn't have to. But he does this because he's gracious and he's merciful and because he loves his creatures. Um, and so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Deuteronomy 29, 29. And a lot, some of you might be familiar with this passage. Um, us good Presbyterians, this is, you know, this is one of our go-to. We, 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 love, we love this passage um, because we think this helps us actually understand this narrative of Scripture. So Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So this, this is seated in the middle of, the, of Deuteronomy. God has just reestablished his covenant with his people before they go into the promised land. They came out of Egypt. He gave them the law on Mount Sinai. Then they wandered for 40 years and really were a pretty terrible people. Um, but God still loved them and reestablished his covenant with them before sending them into the promised land. And this is what we find out, that there are some things that God does not reveal to his people. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I had a lot of questions about that verse. What does that entail? What, what did God do before? You know, one of the big questions about the Genesis narrative is, is this a literal 24-hour period, or is it not? And then Moses tells us, the secret things of the Lord belong to God, but what he has revealed to us are given to us to know him and how to obey him, right? That, that we may do the words of the law, that we might actually obey what God commands us to do. And so we, as God's people, have some work to do. We have to read his word and try to figure out what is he commanding us to do. But at some point in our lives, we have to actually say, there are some things we cannot know because we were not God. But this is what I, I want us to get from this class of understanding the big picture of scriptures, is that God has revealed himself to us. He has told us of this story and that he has actually told us that this story is going somewhere. And what we are to do when we read our scriptures is first off, 
do we believe this story? Do we believe in the story that this tells us about who God is and what he has ultimately done in Jesus Christ? And if we do believe that story, how are we included? How do we participate? Because not only are we not, do we not find our names in Genesis 1-1, we actually don't find our names anywhere in Scripture. And so how are we included into this story? Well, this is where we get to... I'm going to skip Isaiah 46. Uh, I'm going to go to Galatians 4, 4. Um, I'm also going to skip the West. If you want a, um, a good Presbyterian answer of what I just said, read the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, the first paragraph, um, of how God has a plan for everything. Um, but what I want us to look at this morning, Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. God's ultimate plan, what he has revealed to himself in Scripture, is what Paul calls the fullness of time. But when the fullness of time had come, God's plan, what God is doing from the very beginning of the creation, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. He says something very similar in Ephesians 1, 10 to 12. A plan, God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in him, all things created in heaven, all things created on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, remember Genesis 4, 5, adoption to sons. We've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to this purpose of, his, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Why does, at the fullness of time, he re- reveal to us his son that might, he re- might redeem us to be sons and daughters? so that we might praise him. This is the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's that's based in Ephesians 1. The whole purpose of the scriptures, the whole purpose of history, of human history, is so that God's people might come to a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ and glorify God for who he is. And by glorifying him, we might actually enjoy what? Our inheritance as sons and daughters. But here's what's so great. Is that although Paul calls this the fullness of time, God's grace doesn't just appear at the end for the first time at the end of Matthew's gospel. God's grace doesn't appear for the first time in the, at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. For this is what Jesus says, if you turn to John 5, verse 39. Jesus himself says to the Pharisees, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, 
the Old Testament scriptures, all, all of the scriptures that bear witness about me. So before, you know, John 5, Jesus has not gone to the cross. He hasn't raised from the dead. Before Jesus even goes to the cross in the Old Testament, God's people have a witness that points to Jesus. They have something preparing them for Jesus who is to come, for the Messiah who is to come. And this is where we get verses like Luke 24, or chapters like Luke 24. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read them. I gave this, this list so that you can make notes or go back to them later if you want to. Um, but in Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus says... Um, that what is necessary is that Christ should suffer these things, that the Christ should suffer these things. What is he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament. The Christ, the, the Messiah, the Anointed One might suffer these things and enter into glory. And this is what he says, and beginning with the Moses and the prophets, he interpreted them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So one of the first things that Jesus does post-resurrection is go to his disciples and to help them see all of the Old Testament. So um, the, the book of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible. The prophets, we, we typically break the prophets into two groups, the major and the minor prophets. And I'm wondering, does anyone know why we do call them major and minor? Right, yeah, it's actually length. It's not because some are better than the other ones. The major and minor prophets are just the longer ones and then the shorter ones. But um, a Jew doesn't distinguish them between um, major and minor. He distinguished them before uh, between the, the former and the latter. And the former prophets is what we actually call the historical books. So when he says the law and the prophets, he's meaning all of the scriptures, all of the Old Testament Jesus interpreted them in light of himself. Because in the Old Testament, we received, God's people received promises. Promise after promise after promise. And in the New Testament, we receive fulfillment. We received Jesus. If you want to understand promise and fulfillment, read the book of Hebrews. It's eye-opening. It actually helps an, a New Testament believer understand what the Old Testament is all about. It's all about God's promise to his people, which were good promises, but that were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Later in Luke 24, verse 44, he says, the things that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He helped these disciples interpret redemptive history does anyone know what redemptive history means? Great. I'm going to ask that same question in the sermon. So if you guys don't raise your hand when I ask that question in the sermon, because I'm getting ready to explain it. So what redemptive history means is that God progressively reveals himself in history. Right? So in Genesis 1.1, God is revealing himself to his creation. But God hasn't revealed himself fully yet until Christ. Right? 
So God revealed himself to Adam, but he revealed himself fuller to Noah. Fuller even than for Abraham. Abraham knew more about God than Noah did. God revealed more of himself to Moses than he did to Abraham. God revealed more of himself to David than he did to Moses. Why? Because they had what had come before them. And God progressively revealed himself in history. So that leads us to ask the question, how is anyone in the Old Testament saved? Because, because here's what the New Testament says. This is what Peter says at Pentecost. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Is an Old Testament believer only saved if they are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Okay? Okay? So, this is what Paul says in Romans 10. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him, Jesus, will not be put to shame. Does someone have to know the name of Jesus to be saved? Because this is what the New Testament says. It's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow. So does that mean, or I should say, what does that mean for Old Testament saints? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, the question I just asked you is 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 a question that people have been asking for centuries. What 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 does this mean? Because here's what Paul goes on to say. I just read Romans ten eleven. Here's what he says in Romans ten thirteen. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is he quoting? Does anyone know? Does anyone know where that passage come from? Comes from other than Romans ten. He's actually quoting Joel, an Old Testament prophet. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, what? How does the New Testament help us understand the Old Testament? that Old Testament believers didn't know the name of Jesus because the name of Jesus didn't come into existence until the angel revealed it to Mary and to Joseph. But what they did know and what they were called to believe is that the Lord saves his people according to his promises. So in the, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, all of God's people are saved by believing in the promises of God. The promises of God. Right? This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. They find their yes in Jesus. So, going back to Hebrews. 
the Old Testament sacrifices were salvific, meaning the Old Testament sacrifices did bring salvation for those who performed them or whom they were performed on behalf of. But what does the author of Hebrews tell us about that sacrifice? It wasn't a perfect sacrifice. They had to do it every single year. So God did make a way for his people to have a propitiation for their sins through the old Levitical sacrifices. But they weren't perfect. They needed to be done over and over and over again. And as most biblical scholars will say, this should have created a longing for God's people of, when will this be finished? When will this be done? And what we find is that in the fullness of time, in Jesus, that's when the perfect sacrifice is offered. That's why we don't call this a sacrifice. Jesus was sacrificed once for all, perfectly, for all who believe in the promises of God. Clear as mud. Right? Larry. I have a Jewish friend that I've, I've talked about this before, but that was a coma. Mm-hmm. Because the sacrifice that they're offering isn't a perfect sacrifice. It was sufficient for when it was. But in light of Christ, those sacrifices are no longer sufficient for the cleansing of sins. And my favorite verse, little one, he's written in the second chapter of Second Corinthians. I haven't memorized that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> Brandon, are you itching or are you asking a question? Yep.
Yeah, so uh, what I would say is they were pointers to Christ, absolutely. All the sacrifices were pointers to Christ. But how did an Old Testament believer receive that fulfillment? Yeah, so that's absolutely right. So the sacrifices were salvific because God promised them that they would be, knowing that the ultimate sacrifice was coming, right? So all the sacrifices point to Jesus, but what an Old Testament believer depended upon and held true were the promises of God. And what God revealed to the Old Testament people, these sacrifices are making atonement for you, but what they didn't know is that, or what they should have known is that they were preparing for the perfect sacrifice in Jesus, Right, So that's how we can say Joe in Jerusalem went and made a sacrifice to the Lord and left knowing he was assured of his pardon of salvation without knowing the name of Jesus because he believed in the promises of God. And God promised that that sacrifice would atone for their sin, right? The day of atonement that found its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Our confession is very clear that as types and shadows, all of these prepared for Jesus. And in Romans, I think it's Romans 3, God said, uh, what, I forget the exact words, but basically all of those sacrifices were like IOUs that God cashed in at the cross of Christ. So an IOU is good as long as the person who promises can actually pay for it, Right? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. I'm not saying that those sacrifices made any type of atonement outside of faith. They were children of Abraham, right? By definition, they had to be people of faith. But this is the problem that the Old Testament constantly found themselves in, is that they were making sacrifices without faith. That's why the prophets preached against them, right? That's why they were exiled. So what was the what did Jesus always talk about the Pharisees? Yeah. You base you base your whole plan of salvation just on your circumcision, but you're not showing the faith of your father Abraham. Yeah. Mike. Right. Well, and as far as they're concerned, it was perfect because God promised them it would be. That God promised them that I will accept this offering as an atonement for sin. Right? So 
if I haven't said it, hear me say it now. All of this is based upon faith because they are by nature or by descendant children of Abraham, right? So all of these Jews, Israelites, would have received the sign of circumcision, the covenant promise, which Paul tells us very clearly was received after Abraham had faith. Right? And so these, these blood sacrifices were given to cleanse sin, knowing that in the fullness of time, they would all be paid for in the blood of Christ. That's why Paul calls it the fullness of time, because everything before it prepared for that point, and everything after that we do now actually points back to that point. That's how we can be sure that our past sins, our current sins, and our future sins are already forgiven because they've been forgiven in Christ's blood. Mr. Larry. Yeah, I mean, the, the theme of blood is throughout all of Scripture, absolutely. Um, now, sometimes more so, it prepares us for Christ, and sometimes they're just mentioning blood. Um, but if there's anyone that understood what blood meant, it was an Old Testament saint, right, who actually had to take an animal, march it to Jerusalem, and it had to be slaughtered for their sins. So, where does this leave us now? So, we, we, we've covered redemptive history. Or <laughs> I've made more questions than answers about redemptive history. But I've tried to give us a lens of understanding what is actually happening in the Old Testament. How could an Old Testament believer have assurance of their salvation? It was all in God's promises. Our faith, our salvation, are based in God's promises, which have been fuller and more com and completed in Jesus Christ. But they are the same promises that the Old Testament saints did receive. And that's where we get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I, I want everyone to turn there if you have your Bibles. And if you haven't already, this is, this is where you circle or highlight or put a star or if you don't write in your Bible, make a mental note or put in your phone, memorize this passage. Because as I said, the Old Testament is about promise and the New Testament is about fulfillment. But the first promise wasn't given at the cross. We actually find the first promise of God's redemption in Genesis 3, chapter 15, up chapter 3, verse 15. When he's actually cursing the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is what theologians call the proto-evangelium, 
I have it written down there for you because I didn't want to have to spell it as I stood up here. This is the first gospel promise in all of Scripture. Genesis 1 and 2 talk about this plan, this understanding of how the world works. And very quickly in Genesis 3, we find that God's creation causes havoc and chaos. But in Genesis chapter 3, we receive this promise to a sinful people, to a sinful creation, that God will save his people through a seed, through this offspring. And he will crush the head of the serpent. From this passage, this is what I, so when I tell the children this, that Genesis 3.15 helps us interpret this much of the Bible. Genesis 3.15 is the lens on which we interpret and understand everything that God has done in history, everything God will do in history through the promise of the seed. Because that seed is ultimately Christ, which is exactly Paul's point in Galatians 3 and 4. Is it wasn't a plural seed, it was a singular seed. It was Christ himself who would crush the head of the serpent, who would undo everything that the serpent did, everything that Adam and Eve chose to do in disobedience. Christ would undo by crushing the head of the serpent. Now I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. In the first five verses. Because if you don't think there's a unifying theme in all the scriptures, then I hope this helps, helps us see it. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me John, the river of the, of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. At night will, and night will be no more. They will need no light or of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We see the same imagery and the same themes that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 culminating at the event of history where heavens and earth will become one. God will descend, creating a new heavens and a new earth, here on earth, a perfected creation, where men and women, men and women, will no longer desire to see the Lord because he will live amongst his people. This is the plan of all of history. This is the narrative that the scriptures ask us to participate in. And as I said at the beginning, 
The question for us is, do we believe in this narrative? And the second is, how are we to participate? We're called to follow by faith. Trusting in this God and his promises. Because if his promises aren't true, then we're as damned as the people of the Old Testament were who didn't believe in his promises. Because our all of our salvation, all of human history, all of history itself is based upon this plan of salvation for the world. Are there any questions that can be answered in less than three minutes? I hope this piqued your interest. Um, we're going to go a lot from go deeper from here. This was just the first two paragraphs of this book. Blake is going to cover the next three paragraphs um, next week. Um, and we're going to get more into types and shadows and to Christ the last Adam. We're going to get more into offerings. Um, so um, hopefully, hopefully I, I piqued your appetite. Um, didn't cause too much confusion. Um, but I do that really well. It's just caused confusion. Um, and hopefully over a long time, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out something. Are you raising, Jessica? Are you raising your hand? Oh, okay. Anytime I can call on you, babe. Anytime. All right, let's pray.